This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. Good to see everyone here. Uh, Today we're going to continue our introductory studies, of which there are about four lessons prior to going into our study of the book of Revelation. And I'm going to briefly be covering the topics of the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom today. We're going to talk about that again some when we get to that point in the book, but there's some ideas I want you familiar with before that time. Now, once again, I want to stress that I'm going to be presenting to you the primary views on these subjects without making the claim that one or the other is absolutely correct over, the, over another. Because if we're going to be able to teach and study Revelation or defend a view that we take, we do need to know the differences in interpretation shared amongst our fellow Christians. Now, remember, these views are not doctrinal positions in most cases, and none of these will contradict doctrine. The differences are those of interpretation, of future prophetic events, and uh, with that said, I want to go ahead and begin the study for today. Um, It was interesting talking about the tribulation. I had my own experience with tribulation just last night. Um, This is like a precursor, I guess, to when the new baby arrives and I get no sleep. So I probably had like three hours because, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, it could be drinking energy drinks when I shouldn't. I can't go to sleep till after 12 lately. So it's about 12.30 and Charity says, you know, if you're going to preach and be worth listening to, you should probably go to bed. So I lay down. About 30 minutes go by and I hear all this and this noise and eventually I hear Charity shuffling her way toward this noise and uh, it turns out it's Arabella and she's sick and I hear all this, ah, just get it out. And um, I try to lay back down and go to sleep. She has it in hand. And then a little bit later, I start to hear charity too, and it's like, just back and forth, back and forth. I'm like, what is going on? So I finally get up and I go check, and charity's outside. She's like this, and looks like she's in pain. I said, what is, what's happening? Are you sick? No, it's just, Arabella didn't make it to the toilet. She threw up all over the floor, and I'm having to clean it up, and it's just really hard for me, especially being pregnant, not to get sick too. So I look, and sure enough, there's a big mess on the floor. There's about 800 paper towels. The trash cans in there is very nasty. I survey the situation. I go back to bed. <laughs> um, Charity supported that. You know, she let me go to bed. And uh, anyway, throughout the night, this continued and on into the morning. So bless Arabella's heart. That's why she's not here. And Charity's there staying with her. But tribulation, uh, what is tribulation. The word tribulation occurs 19 times in the New Testament, 18 of which are the same word in fa- uh, that's found in Revelation 2, 9 through 10, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 14, and that word is thlipsis, which means pressure, anguish, burden, persecution, tribulation, or trouble. Once the word thlebo is used, which is the word that the first word thlipsis is derived from, Philebo was uh, used by the Apostle Paul and is simply saying that the believers at Thessalonica are experiencing philipsis or tribulation. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated tribulation is sar. And uh, that can mean a tight place, also a pebble. Uh, A pebble is an irritation. You heard that story about the princess and the pea under her mattress that she could feel. adversary, afflicted, anguish, close, distress, enemy, etc. This word carries the meaning of being in a tight spot with trouble on all sides. And in all cases, whether it's Old Testament or New, no matter where it's used, the meaning of the word is essentially the same. Well, how does Revelation use this word? In Revelation, the word tribulation is used not only to describe the general persecution of believers, But it more specifically is addressing a specific period of time that will occur in in the history of the world prior to Christ's second coming. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology states that frequently, tribulation is connected with deliverance, which implies that it is a necessary experience through which God glorifies himself in bringing his people to rest and salvation. 
Speaking of this idea, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that are the called according to his purpose. The psalmist David said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Furthermore, we're told that suffering and tribulation bring about the glorification of God in Romans 8, 17-34, 1 Peter 4, 12-19, Hebrews 5, 7-9, just to name a few. So what we see here is a theme regarding tribulation. God uses tribulation to test His people, to grow His people in faith, but the main purpose is to bring Himself glory. When John the Revelator speaks of tribulation, and specifically the tribulation period, he's showing us how God resolves being a God of love, but also a God of justice. Both things are in the nature of God, and while they are potentially contradictory according to logic, both things are equally true. But in order to remain true to both, God has to judge the world for sin, even as he makes a way to avoid said judgment. The tribulation period represents the final word of God on sin. Now when is the tribulation? Closely tied to one's view of the rapture and the millennial kingdom is the specific period for the fulfillment of tribulation prophecy. Now there are three major prophetic schools of interpretation for prophecy in general. Typically those views can be separated into futurist, preterist, and, uh, which is further broken down into partial and full, and then historists. The futurist school sees most of the prophecies in Revelation from chapter 4 onward as applying to events that are still in the future. This group believes that not all the signs of Christ's second coming or return have happened yet, and what hasn't been fulfilled will be prior to the second coming of Christ. Daniel's 70-week prophecy is central to this view. Futurism is the interpretation espoused by the popular Left Behind series, and it's supported by the majority of mainstream Protestant churches right now. Interestingly, this theory was first put forth by a Roman Catholic Jesuit named Francisco Ribera in the late 1500s. Uh, it's claimed that this was in his response to the claim that the papacy was actually the Antichrist. So this theory of futurism was supposedly invented by the Jesuits to divert people's minds from seeing and believing that the Roman church was the Antichrist and also the great whore which Revelation describes. However, the evidence we have from the church father's writings say that uh, futurists were the original uh, first century believers. That was their view. One of the great draws of futurism is that the very existence of Israel today is the miraculous fulfillment of biblical prophecy, they say. Consider the prophecy of the Antichrist, for example, being able to control all buying and selling throughout the world. Now, until the last 20 years or so, uh, very few would be able to envision how he would be able to do that. But with today's technology, along with the ever-expanding field of artificial intelligence, we now know that a, such a, a literal system could easily be brought into existence in the future. And given what we see in the news, it's no longer a matter of how, but when, that certain levels of control over people come into place. Now, there's some, here's some arguments against futurism. The futurist interpreters refer all the book except for the, of Revelation, except for the first three chapters to events which are going to happen in the future still. Against this view is alleged that it's inconsistent with the repeated declarations of a speedy fulfillment at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. Against both of these views, it is argued that if either one of them is correct, the Christian church is left without any prophetic guidance in the scriptures during the greater part of its existence. While the Jewish church was favored with prophets during most of its existence. The next one is preterists. Preterism comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past. And most preterists place great significance on the events of the first Jewish-Roman War in AD 66 through AD 70. And they believe that 
these prophecies were fulfilled during that time. Now, most preterists interpret the events in the Olivet Discourse of Jesus and in the book of Revelation has been largely fulfilled during that historic period. Many preterists deny that the Olivet Discourse and the Apocalypse even address the topic of the second coming of Jesus. Now, people who hold this view often believe that John in Revelation is describing the challenges of the early church in overcoming the Antichrist power of pagan Rome and the influence of Judaism. Preterists believe all the signs in some sense of Christ's return have already happened to include, in some cases, his second coming. According to them, all signs were fulfilled in the events surrounding the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Now, preterism, like futurism, is also accredited to the Jesuits for the same reasons. During the early 17th century, a Jesuit priest named Louis de Alcazar supposedly first developed the preterist approach to eschatology in response to the reformers. Uh, this would be Calvin, Martin Luther, etc., uh, Zwingli. It was, it was in regard to, uh, it was in answer to their uh, views that uh, this all applied to the abuses of the Catholic Church. Now, Alcazar responded to this condemnation of Catholicism with his own view of John's writing, it said, which came to be known as preterism. He regarded the prophecies of the book of Revelation as having been fulfilled in the past, and Alcazar taught that the prophecies of Revelation cover the first 500 years of the church, depicting its struggles against Judaism and later against paganism. He believed Revelation 21 and 22 depicted the glories of the papacy and the Roman church during the 5th century. Now this preterism is broken further down into two additional points. You have partial preterism. They hold that the majority of the signs about the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation were fulfilled, but they still await the second coming of Christ. Uh, these would be the preterists that most people would say are reasonable. But you have what they consider full or hyper-preterists. These are considered unreasonable by many. They believe everything's been fulfilled, including the second coming of Christ and the general resurrection of the dead. Now, the time texts of the New Testament are the primary weapon that the preterist uses to defend their view. By time text, I mean the ones that say that these events are going to happen shortly. None of the majority of these verses specify a time or date of fulfillment, but most of the texts do convey the meaning of, uh, and the idea of nearness or imminence. Preterists argue that without precision of meaning for these time texts, that prophetic pronouncements are meaningless. In Revelation, the time statement at the beginning and end of the book are a type of literary device known as an ellipsis or a parenthesis. This device is meant to inform the reader that the issue of the nearness of the Lord's coming is intrinsic to the book's whole theme. And that soon and near often convey the idea of temporal nearness. The thrust of the argument is that saying these events are fulfilled in the future distorts the words making near become distant and quickly become ages of the future and at hand becomes far off. You get the idea. Now here's some arguments against the preterist view. Once again, this teaches that God has no prophetic message for his church during the greater part of New Testament history. Because it's all been fulfilled. And he still has no people, or no message, no prophetic message for his people today, living in the last days, even though we live in more spiritually perilous times than ever before, it seems. And the fact that the last couple of chapters of Revelation describe the second coming and the new Jerusalem throws the view into doubt straight away. The idea behind this argument is that preterism fails to take into account what is referred to as the prophetic perspective. Now, I've got a chart up on the board to kind of illustrate this as best I can. It is true that the modern reader of Revelation faces the challenge of reconciling these statements about an apparent delay in the Lord's coming and, you know, that uh, it's near, it's at hand. But they would be well advised to remember how Peter addressed this very challenge 
in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 13. There, Peter warns that the tendency will be common for people to scoffingly ask, where is this coming? He prophesied. To which Peter replies by reminding them that with the day, or with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Which is a direct quote of Psalm 90, verse 4. He goes on to say, Peter does, that the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises, as some understand slowness. The actual problem is a faulty perception of slowness, based on an erroneous reckoning of time by those who fail to appreciate the depth of God's patience toward those that he would have be saved that have not yet repented, according to verse 9. The proper prophetic view, as we were talking about in our last session, will take into account that many prophecies concerning the day of the Lord refer to a localized judgment that was fulfilled in part during the centuries following its announcement, but complete fulfillment is still in the future. Remember multiple fulfillment and partial fulfillment prophecies? This is what we're going to refer to as the already and not yet principle of prophecy. It is foundational to understanding biblical prophecy. The primary example of this principle is that of God's kingdom. It's been set in motion by Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, but it will be consummated when he returns. So it's just like the Jewish wedding. You know, you had this betrothal period where the bridegroom would be building, preparing a home. Many times it was built on top of, uh, you know, the, the parents' existing residence. And during that time, he and his bride were betrothed and they were treated as though they were married. But they had not come together and consummated the marriage. If some one of the other of them went and, uh, you know, committed immorality with another person, it would be treated as adultery. It was that serious. So it was a real binding thing. That marriage was there, but it was in a certain period. And it was when he finished that house and the bridegroom called and said, I'm ready. And then everybody came to the feast. And many times it was at night and people weren't expecting it, which is why you have the parables of the, of the foolish virgins who didn't keep their lamps trimmed and bright. So the idea here is that just because we're told that something uh, is soon, is at hand. It doesn't contradict itself to say that it's been set into motion, but it is not yet complete. I want to uh, point you to Galatians 1 verse 4. The future age to come has already penetrated this present evil age, we're told there. Though the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit, acting in the lives of the Lord's people. What does that mean? That means that God's kingdom has already begun to exert its influence and spread and grow in the spiritual sense because of the presence of the Holy Spirit working within our lives. But it is not physically established as we're told that it will be yet. And that will happen at Christ's second coming. Also, what about the book of Daniel in the Old Testament? The prophecies in this book span from Daniel's day to the second coming of Christ, described in Daniel 12. So are we to believe that Daniel would give a continuous prophetic message for God's people all throughout history and to the end? But Revelation would only give us a very short message that ended in AD 70. This, this doesn't match the pattern that we've come to expect from prophecy throughout the Bible. The third view are the historists. The historicist school sees the book of Revelation as largely predictive of actual events to occur throughout history of Christianity from the time of John until the return of Jesus Christ. It's a little different from preterism. The greatest defenders of this particular view consider the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, the seven vials as all synchronous, they're parallel, they're a series of cyclical collective pictures, each presenting the entire course of the world, the history of the world, as it's connected with the church down to the end of time. Now, just that they say that just as the seven churches in the first three chapters represent the universal church, that the message to each was pointing to the second coming of Christ. Historists are fond of saying the following. 
Bible prophecy was given to increase our faith as the events foretold came to pass. Prayerism doesn't predict anything, and the predictions of futurism never come to pass. Neither of these false interpretations can ever increase faith. That's the typical historist argument. Here's some arguments against historicism. Again, this was very popular with the reformers. It remained the dominant perspective on eschatology all the way through the 19th century. So it started out in the early church, people were futurist in their views because, you know, no matter what view you take, and AD 70 hadn't arrived yet. So everything was future. But then there's a divergence, and uh, you had a lot of people that went to the historicist view. But here's the problem with historicism. There are no two historicists who can agree on what symbols go with what historical events. And the fact that John's original readers could not have understood the book of Revelation in a historical manner, the historicist view, is not widely held today. Now, when it comes to the Church of Christ, the prevailing point of view seems to be some mix between preterism and historicism. But we are in the minority. Uh, most Christians do not believe that, just so you know. Now, moving on, those are the three schools. I want to talk about this tribulation question, how it plays out. We're going to, this chart up here has all of the, the views that we're going to go over, and I'm going to leave it up there as we talk so you can kind of see the star, the yellow explosion or whatever, that's supposed to represent the rapture. The wrath of God is the arrows. The kingdom of God, or the second coming of Christ is uh, represented by that yellow block that says kingdom, and you can see times at the bottom, etc. Now, while the question of what the tribulation is may seem simple, the question of who, what, when, and where it exactly plays out and is administered is, is not always so clear. As a result, there are four main views that I want to briefly look at. Depending on the view, on the view that you take, uh, different designators are assigned up there. So you have pre-tribulationalist, mid-tribulationalist, pre-wrath tribulationalist, and post-tribulationalist. Some modern interpreters, along with ancient commentators and early fathers, are inclined to regard Jesus' predictions in his Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24, verses 3 through 25, as totally fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The words of Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the distress of those days, seem to connect them to the second coming of Christ. Jesus' words in verse 21 are probably an allusion to Daniel 12, verse 1. Because of the reference there to unparalleled trouble, the word flipsless or tribulation again. The Daniel passage strengthens the case for a future occurrence of the great tribulation because it places this period prior to the resurrection of Daniel's people. Now, we're eventually going to, I'm going to have a whole lesson on Daniel's 70 week prophecy and you will soon see that it is impossible to understand the symbolism or the prophecy as it's laid out in Revelation if you don't read Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah in particular. Now Jesus, he made a prophecy in Matthew 24. Major wars, catastrophes, comic, uh, cosmic phenomena, and they, they've stirred up support for a future great tribulation amongst people. Think about the Left Behind series. Augustine was, an early, was one of the so-called early church fathers. He disagreed with this. And he preferred to interpret such things as characteristic of history as a whole. In other words, just generalized statements with no prophetic significance. And, he, you know, in so doing, they completely separate the Olivet Discourse from Revelation. So it's important that you know that there are some people that if you start trying to talk about your view of Revelation, the first thing they're going to ask you is what's your view on the Olivet Discourse? And if you say that it's tied to prophecy, they will immediately discount everything you say after that. Now, in modern times, some premillennialists have speculated on what the trend of current events could be. With some going so far as trying to identify the Antichrist, but regardless, adherence to the four major views place the Great Tribulation at different points in relation to the millennium and what is known as the rapture of the church. 
pre-tribulationalists, pre-tribbers as they're called. They believe that the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ, is in the future. That it's a literal 1,000 year reign on earth. And that the great tribulation period is a chaotic period toward which history is currently moving. So it's this seven year period here that we're talking about. And they believe that the rapture happens before all that. Kind of sets everything off. Now, this view states that the world is in a sinful decline and it's going to end with the return of Christ prior to the millennium. One group, the historic premillennialists, pre understand that the Great Tribulation period is going to be brief, they say, but it's going to be an undetermined period of trouble. Another group, dispensational premillennialists, connect the Great Tribulation with the 70th week of Daniel in nine, chapter 9, verse 27. And that's that period of, that's how we get this period of seven years, three and a half, three and a half. We'll go over that in the future time. The pre-trib view believes the church is going to be raptured prior to this, as I said. That's going to set everything off. And this view holds that saved believers who are still alive will be bodily lifted into heaven and the dead in Christ will be raised from the grave along with them. And in this way, they are spared from God's wrath. So you see, God's wrath is this gray arrow and all that happens after the believers, the church, are taken away. Now, proponents of this view are known to say there is no logical way to explain how these judgments, the wrath of the Lamb, would ever be allowed to fall on His bride, us, the church. They say He wouldn't be much of a husband if He beat her up and then took her to the wedding reception, would He? Pre-tribbers generally hold that the rapture occurs at the point Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 is addressing. This is where John is taken up into heaven, which is not the rapture itself, but the idea is that what John sees immediately after when he's taken into heaven are clear pictures of the church already there. And indeed, a case can be made for this due to the presence of the 24 elders. We'll go into great detail on who those are when we start the study of the book. This view claims that they are clearly believers in the Lord. They are in heaven and they wear white garments, something that symbolizes God's righteousness. They also wear crowns, something that is not said of angels in Scripture in which believers are said to receive. Furthermore, the elders also worship the Lord. Based on these descriptions, these 24 elders are presumed to represent those who worship the Lord. More specifically, they may represent either the church or they could represent Israel, or they could represent the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Whatever view you take, um, this it's possible also, by the way, that one variation of these views is that the 24 elders may come from 1 Chronicles 24, 1 through 5, in which the priests were organized into 24 groups. If so, this kingdom of priests represents the church that dwells in heaven with the Lord during the tribulation period. So you see, this is why I have to do these pre-lessons. There are so many views, so many ways to interpret it, and every one of them can make a strong argument, in many cases drawn from Scripture. Now, eventually I'm going to tell you what I think is most likely, but for now, I want you to absorb just, just this brief survey of all the views. Now remember, pre-tribbers believe that anything recorded in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, I'd recommend you take notes if you're not. Remember, pre-tribbers, Revelation 4, verse 1, that is the point where they believe everything after that, the rapture has already happened. This happens to an earth where the church is no longer present. Also, one last thing. This view also typically believes in the future restoration of the actual physical nation of Israel and the eventual conversion of Jews to Christianity. Now let's move on to mid-tribulationalists. Mid-tribbers believe much the same as pre-tribbers, only they place the rapture in the middle of the seven-year period. Right there. Um, central to this belief is the falling away spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-4. through 4. Let's read that. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ 
is at hand. Here's the, here's the part that their argument hinges on. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a great falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. That is a great falling away of the church, apostasy. And the man of sin would be the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So number one, apostasy has to happen. People have to turn away from God who were members of the church, who'd been saved. And the man of sin has to be revealed. Now, detractors from the pre-trib position criticize the idea of an invisible rapture. Again, think about the Left Behind series. You're going about your business, all of a sudden the person next to you just disappears and is gone. It's the invisible rapture. And they're criticized for that view. There is much discussion uh, amongst pre-tribbers even, speculating on how is it possible for the church and millions of Christians to suddenly disappear, and yet the whole world can't seem to piece together what has happened. And they go on to worship the beast, it says. Now theories abound, ranging from the presupposition that so few will be raptured in the world that people won't actually realize the rapture has happened. And after all, the Bible says that few will be who, you know, find salvation. Most will take that broad path. And then others, another extreme, they go so far as to say there will be mass alien abductions. And I used to scoff at this so much. Uh, but what I've seen is a growing trend. People, a growing number of people, really believe this. They believe that maybe the fallen angels or whatever will come back and be seen as extraterrestrials. And uh, even Oprah has said some nonsense about this. And that's why no one's going to realize the rapture happened in the pre-trib view, supposedly, because they'll just think that Mother Earth took care of herself. Aliens came who seeded our race and took us all away. Just complete hogwash and nonsense. Imaginary, imaginary stories. As I said, when I find something completely absurd, I'm going to tell you, for the most part, I don't have a lot of that to say. But views like this, um, it's just guessing. Even if it turned out to be real, it's just fantasy that we're trying to apply to make our view fit. So just keep that in mind. I don't discount the idea out of hand of an invisible rapture. What I discount are some of the ways people have sought to explain it. Now, one notable difference in the mid-trib view is that the rapture will be visible. To support this claim, mid-tribbers point to Mark 13, verses 26 through 27. It says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of the heavens. So the main difference here is mid-tribbers believe Scripture teaches that there must be a great turning away from the church, an apostasy that makes it possible for the Antichrist to reveal himself, and then when it gets to this point, right in the middle, there will have been some tribulation the church goes through here. But right here, that's where it's about to get bad. That's where the wrath of God is about to be poured out on the earth. And so then, the church is raptured. It's too late for everybody. They all have... Uh, you know, made their case that they, they want to worship the Antichrist is the idea. And so a visible rapture is appropriate. <clears throat> now, from the point that the Antichrist makes himself known in the mid-trib view, he'll have 42 months or the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period to blaspheme everything that has to do with God. The result will be even greater apostasy within the church itself. And mid-tribbers say uh, the apostasy or the turning away from Christ will be so widespread that it fulfills Matthew 24, verses 23 through 31. And specifically verse 24, which says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So you see how they put their argument together. They say that the church can be deceived, it will be deceived, 
and that uh, it's going to get bad enough that Christ will come and take everybody out of there halfway through. Now, how is it possible, Medtribbers ask, for the rapture to happen until we see these things fulfilled? Because Scripture says we'll see it. In response to this, there are some detractors. First John, they point to 1 John 4, verses 2 through 3. It says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever ye have heard that it should come. And even now, already is it in the world. This verse is used to say that the Antichrist not only isn't one person, but that it can be many people. Because it is a general disposition toward Christ. You see, the, the, the argument against mid-trivers and pre-trivers and anybody that believes in it, the Antichrist being an actual single person, they say, no, 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 no. This verse says that it's a spirit that's been present in the world since John was writing. It's not an actual person. That's the idea. Now it is true that the spirit of Antichrist resides in any and all who reject Jesus Christ. And it is true that this spirit not only existed in John's lifetime, but it was also present during Jesus' lifetime. But it bears mentioning that the spirit of Antichrist and the more specific individual who Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians and by John in Revelation can represent two different things with the same motivation and goal. I'm of the mindset that it seems likely to me that both are true. That this spirit of Antichrist is present in the world, but that there is a centralizing focus of this spirit onto an individual in the end times. There are views that believe that that was Antiochus Epiphany, I believe, uh, when he defiled the temple, the abomination of desolation. We're going to get into and discuss all that in a future lesson. The next view is the pre-wrath tribulationalists. Now this view is much the same as the mid-trib view, only it places the rapture of the church in the middle of the latter 3.5 year period. Uh, the primary proof is Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16, and that, that appears to refer to the rapture immediately prior to the bulls of wrath judgment. And finally, you have post-tribulationalists. Now, these guys view history as moving toward the Christianization of the whole world. They basically say that the great tribula uh, tribulation is um, it's an undetermined length of time on the earth, and... It's merely an intensification of the kind of tribulation the church has suffered throughout all of history and that the church has to pass through it. So the main, main difference with this view is they say we're going to be present for the whole seven-year period all the way up to the end. Uh, there's just... Uh, there are people in our congregation, to give you an idea, there I know personally of some who believe the pre-trib view some who believe the post-trib view. There may be some that believe the others, but I'm not aware of them. But I just want you to know that very strong arguments can be made for both. And uh, it's not wrong to settle on an opinion one way or the other, but just understand that we don't have enough information to say with certainty which one of these views is right and wrong. We just can't. You can make a strong view, but it's very distasteful and you will turn people away from even listening to you if you say, look, let me tell you something. This is my speciality. I know everything about this. And um, if you don't agree with me, then, then you're just wrong, you're crazy, whatever. It's what we talked about before. Consider something about post-tribulationalists, for example. Which, by the way, seems to encompass most of the churches of Christ that I've ever come across. Not all of them maybe, but most of them. This view, whether we say it or not, naturally leads one to expect that uh, because a lot of times we, we believe that we're already in a figurative millennial reign and that what we're doing is we're spreading the gospel but shouldn't the world be getting better according to the description of the millennial view? That's the argument against it. 
And this view was very popular until World War I and World War II. You can imagine why. Because at that point, everybody looked around and they said, how can this view be true? Things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. So this is why the post-trib view is one of the least popular views now, and uh, oftentimes you won't even hear it talked about anymore. Now, let's move on to uh, the Millennial Kingdom. Now, the Millennial Kingdom, as I said, you know, you got the premillennial view, and they believe that this is going to be a literal thousand-year reign on the earth. They believe Christ is going to come back at the beginning of that time. He's going to, and this is going to be before the new heaven and the new earth, and he's going to change how things are done here. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. If the nations don't come to celebrate the appropriate feast in Israel at the temple, then they'll be cursed. This is what the Bible tells us. Whether or not you take it literally or figuratively, it may change your view on that, but these guys believe it is a literal rule. Now there are three stages to the resurrection, the premillennial view. Uh, I recently heard a series on Revelation. It was talking about how this premillennial, you know, this millennial kingdom, premillennialism, all this stuff, pre-trip, can't be true because of what it does to the return, the resurrection, basically. So there are three stages of the resurrection according to the premillennial view. First, you had Christ who was resurrected. Then you'll have those who belong to Christ who are raised at his second coming. And then you have the end of the kingdom according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 24. With Jesus' coming, he's going to raise the dead in two stages, they say. At the beginning of the kingdom so that some can participate in the millennial kingdom. So you'll have the living saints and those who died who will be raised from the dead to live in this literal 1,000-year kingdom. And at the end of the kingdom, then he's going to raise all the rest of the dead and judge them. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58. Now, premillennialism interprets Scripture using something called the... Uh, literal, historical, grammatical approach. And as a general rule of thumb, if you go to seminary or if you study with Bible students and such, the most reputable teachers will say this is the approach you should take, a literal, grammatical, historical approach. You take things in context, you look at the situation that happened back then, and you don't read into it allegory. Because when you, when you make allegory out of the Bible, uh, you end up distorting the entire meaning. There is nothing. So you can't expect that Genesis is a historical, literal representation of history because it's just allegorical, you see. There was no actual week. It was just allegory. Now, one important thing to understand, though, is the type of book Revelation is. It's called uh, apocryphal literature. And it does specialize in pictures and allegory and symbols. There are certain books in the Bible that purposely do that. And we have to separate between the two. So while the literal, literal, grammatical, historical approach is almost always the best, you do have to be careful when you try to apply that view to Revelation or to Daniel in particular. Postmillennialism. These folks believe that Christ's glorious return to the earth will happen after a non-literal 1,000-year reign of believers on earth. As I said, we're already in this, supposedly. And while the premillennialist says, that's getting harder and harder to say, Christ comes to bind Satan, the postmillennialist says that Christ already bound Satan when Christ came in the first century. Therefore, the Christian, according to the postmillennial position, is already in the non-literal 1,000 year reign. This means that Satan still has some level of dominion over the world right now, but it's not in the same way that he did before Jesus came to earth in the first century. Now this is partially based on Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, and Jeremiah 31. Uh, one post-millennialist scholar says that Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah 2 represent the whole people of God. And he develops this further by stating that the mountain, the house of God, of Jacob and Zion referenced in these texts refer to the church, not the nation of Israel.
Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip through a little bit of this uh, post-millennialist stuff, but I just want you to, to know the differences between the three. A literal 1,000-year kingdom and a figurative kingdom. That's basically what it comes down to. And we're going to discuss that as we go through the book. Now, I have uh, several key scriptures that support the post-millennialist view, if you want to see it. Genesis 12, 3, Psalm 2, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This view believes in replacement theology primarily, which means that the nation of Israel is no longer God's chosen people. He divorced them. The church is now that. We'll discuss that more later. I I absolutely do not agree with that, just so you know. We are grafted into God's people. We did not replace God's people. There were branches that were cut off. A new tree was not created. We were grafted into the existing tree. The nation of Israel is still part of God's people. The hate that we see toward the nation of Israel is completely unscriptural. And I believe that the curses that the Bible talks about, the blessings and the curses for those who bless and curse the nation of Israel, I think they still stand. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Final view I want to talk about is amillennialism. As quickly as we can. This is the view that churches of Christ have historically held most often. This teaches that all events of Christ's second coming will occur at the same time and in a cluster. This is based upon the understanding that anyone who has accepted Christ is the true Israel because Christ is Israel and anyone who is in Christ is also in Israel. With this position, the amillennialist believes that the day lies ahead when Christ will come again. Believers will be resurrected. There will be judgment for all. The new heaven and the new earth will be created. The final kingdom will be inaugurated. And those who have been redeemed will be in a blessed state. This day, according to the amillennial view, is a short period of time in which all these events happen at once. In this view... The church age ends with the return of Christ to judge the world and usher in eternity. God promises to Israel, or God's promises to Israel, are viewed as having been fulfilled in the church as the new Israel of the new covenant. As a result, all millennialists see no specific future for for national Israel. They view the church age as the era of conflict between the forces of good and evil, which eventually culminates with the return of Christ. They believe there is not a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, nor is there a non-literal 1,000-year reign of believers. This position is based on John chapter 2, where Jesus refers to himself as the true temple of God. In addition, the amillennialist does not believe that the Old Testament teaches a future millennial kingdom of Christ, but rather that the Old Testament prophets spoke about the Messiah's everlasting kingdom and blessing. They point to Genesis 17, verses 7 through 8, 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, Psalms 105, verse 10, Isaiah 45, 17, and a whole bunch of other verses. This view probably has the longest list of scriptures to back up their point of view. Additionally, the promise of the Old Testament for Israel to take the promised land is viewed as no longer binding, but instead it is now promised to the elect in Christ. As a result, there will be a restoration and renewal of the earth, which should be seen as the new heaven and the new earth, not for 1,000 years, but for eternity. Therefore, the amillennial view does not see Romans 11 or Revelation 20 as describing a thousand-year reign with Christ at the beginning or the end. The amillennialist interprets Scripture, specifically Revelation, in a spiritual or allegorical approach. It places a very strong emphasis on reinterpreting Old Testament prophecy to the revelation of New Testament Scriptures. For example, it takes the... uh, Let's just say uh, there are some things that are confusing about this view. There's some arguments against it. Here's one. Um, sometimes we're said, uh, they're said to take uh, 
some things literal and some things figurative throughout Scripture. And so people will point to, for example, the amillennialist takes the meaning of day to be literal in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, and hour to also be literal in John 5, 28 through 29. Now they do this because if you see these things as literal, then that allows you to say that all end time events will happen at the exact same time. That's why. However, when you come to Romans chapter 11 and Revelation 20, they no longer take the the word year to be literal. Now it's a figurative thing. The first prominent theologian in the early church to advocate advocate amillennialism was Origen. He lived in 184 to 254 AD. He was a heretic, interestingly. He derived his view on on the millennium by trying to combine scripture with the views of Plato, Uh, Plato regarded material things as insignificant and spiritual things had the greater emphasis. So in anything that was material, you had to look for a spiritual meaning. And since Origen was was of this school of thought, he tried to take all of Scripture and apply that way of thinking to the Bible. Which is not necessarily wrong in all cases, but he went so far with certain things that the Nicene Council of AD 325 actually condemned all of his teachings uh, because he had started saying that we are reincarnated and that there's universal salvation available to the world. That's why he was a heretic. Those things are absolutely, categorically false and untrue. Are you starting to see that with each of these views there may be pieces that we can agree with and there may be pieces that we don't agree with When I went to school for this stuff and I'd write papers on these things, we were supposed to take an approach and argue for it or against it or whatever. I found I could never find one approach that I completely agreed with and I resented being being told that, for example, the Church of Christ is this. Well, that's not the Church of Christ I know. It seems to me we're more of an amalgamation of, of several of these ideas and sometimes we have beliefs that you haven't even mentioned. So just keep in mind, this is why there are many people who are so resistant to coming to the Church of Christ. Did you know that we're considered a cult? We're actually listed as a cult if you research the Church of Christ. And the reasons for that are because of our particular beliefs on certain things. And we're going to do our best to be able to not only through this study explain what we believe, but be able to understand what other people believe so that we can more usefully have a discussion with people because I know some of these views, you're just like, well, that's just wrong. Why are you talking about something that's false up in the pulpit? You must know what these things are if you are to help people understand the truth. Don't kid yourself and think that there is no benefit to understanding where other people are coming from because at the end of the day, we're not talking about being right. We're talking about people's souls. We're talking about their faith and their sense of assurance. Remember I said prophecy primarily can give you assurance and it can bring glory to God. But if all it does is cause fighting, bickering, argument that leads to nobody even teaching Revelation in particular at all, And when they do, you get the hackles up on half the people because of the approach people take. It always starts out the same. Let me just tell you, everybody else is wrong, but I've got it figured out. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. But you can't have a good conversation unless you know the strengths and weaknesses and the facts about what people believe. I'm going to share one last thing about amillennialism before we wrap up. There's a primary amillennial argument that goes something like this. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26 is speaking of the second coming of Christ when the resurrection occurs and when death will be no more. Therefore, they say that when Jesus returns, all things will be consummated and there will be no need for a millennial period where death continues to exist. The millennial period is the church age. When Christ returns, that is when death is finally eliminated, not a thousand years later. That is the amillennial argument. Now this sounds very persuasive, doesn't it? And it's been used to discredit the pre-trib and the post-trib views quite effectively. However, 
there's a counter argument. It goes as follows. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 states that Christ will reign until the destruction of death. Revelation 20, verse 7 and verse 14 states death is thrown into the lake of fire after the thousand-year period. Therefore, death will exist during the millennial period. And in case, now, at this point, the amillennial says, well, you are reading Revelation in a chronological order, and you're not supposed to. You can't do that. I believe you do read Revelation in chronological order, but there are some interludes placed in it that are, it's not exactly chronological, in other words, but you are to read it with the expectation that it is telling you and showing you a series of events that go pretty much in order. And then it flips back and forth to heaven a couple of times. This notion of death in the next age that is, uh, it's, cor- it's corroborated actually by another scripture. Isaiah 65 verse 20. And this is, again, something I want you to keep in mind. You can always make an argument against even the strongest views, it seems. Isaiah 65 20 says, Never again will one of her infants live just a few days or an old man die before his time. Here's the verse. Indeed, no one will die before the age of 100. Anyone who fails to reach the age of 100 will be considered curse. So you understand what this is saying is that there is prophesied a specific time on this earth where there are people who will experience a longer period of life than normal. They will not have babies dying after a couple of days. They're going to live full lives that are unusual and different from what we experience now. They won't even be considered old at the age of 100, we're told. But it does say only the cursed will die that young. This verse is one of the primary proof verses used to say that there will be death during the millennial period. As these are very convincing points. There's one final counter-argument. After you've made this, and maybe people have said, now I've got the millennialist. And then they say, well, you still haven't proven that the millennial period is in the future. Of course death exists because we're living in it right now, brother. See this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So how do you study Revelation? What is the answer to this book? Should we just be indecisive about it and not be able to draw a conclusion based on Scripture that is guided and we are taught by the Holy Spirit like Scripture tells us? No. We have, to, uh, we have to settle on something that we believe. But my point is this. Not every one of us is going to settle on the same view. And that is okay. There are certain things that are doctrine. Prophecy, usually, is not doctrine. It may point to Christ and... It may point to things that are doctrinal, but prophecy, the prediction of future things, that is, when it's shrouded in mystery, that is not doctrine, it's mysterious. We don't know. So, I know this was a a long lesson, and I know that it's a whole lot of information. If you want the PowerPoint, I will give it to you so that you can review it. And uh, there's a whole lot of proof verses in here. It may help you make sense of all the talking that's happened today. Moving forward, this is the last lesson that I intend to give that is just teaching like in a class or something. From here on out, it's going to be uh, more in line with sermons. We do have a couple of things that are going to be topical in nature, like we're going to have a lesson on the rapture. We're going to have a lesson on Daniel's 70-week prophecy. But more and more, they're going to be actual sermons again. So thank you for bearing with me on this particular one. It's important, as you'll see, moving forward, now that we've set the groundwork, when we get to these verses in Revelation, we're going to be able to know exactly what we're talking about and what people had to say. As we conclude, I just want to say that we haven't talked about what's commonly called first principles today. We can t- this is an interesting study, but what's really important why I say that it's okay when we settle on different points of view with prophecy sometimes is because what really matters is Jesus. 
What really matters is that you are saved by Him, that He is your Lord, that you repent, confess, and obey by submitting to the waters of baptism. And then you are set free into good works and you live a different life. And you fulfill the Great Commission and you tell everybody the good news about what you have. You see, our life doesn't need to be ruled by questions like what we're studying right now. These are things that are part of Scripture. They inform us on Scripture. They make more sense of certain elements of Scripture. But the real thing that matters is the Gospel. So let's keep that in mind. And I, when I intend to say this at the end of every lesson. Let's move forward in this study with the idea of figuring out how does this point to Christ and how does it bring glory to God and how does it stir up in us an interest and a desire to study His Word. If there be anybody in the audience who feels they are ready to be baptized or if there be anyone who is in need of the prayers of the church, we ask you to step forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.